Jung. Everything Jung wrote was based on an experience. Jungian psychology isn't about ideas, it's about experiences. This quarantine series is based on my personal experiences with interesting people. Joining us for the 15th episode in this series is the host of Dreamland, literary legend, and one of my greatest teachers, Whitley Strieber. He studied English, law, and film at the University of Texas at Austin and was active in the Gurdjieff Foundation for many years. He went on to author over 50 works of both fiction and nonfiction, and they're all listed in the show notes for this episode with links to purchase on Amazon, every single one of them. His books The Wolfen, The Hunger, Communion, and The Coming Global Superstorm, as the day after tomorrow, were all made into feature films. His sci-fi series, Alien Hunter, became the sci-fi channel series, Hunters. His website, unknowncountry.com, was founded by his wife, the late Ann Strieber, in 1998. It is the largest website of its kind in the world, reporting on the genuine edge of science. It includes his long-running podcast, Dreamland, begun by the legendary broadcaster Art Bell in the early 1990s, his highly informative blog, Whitley's Journal, meditations, including his popular sensing exercise, daily science news, and a large community of what Whitley calls spiritual explorers. Most of the content is free, and affordable subscriptions are available for full access, which includes the entire archive of Dreamland episodes with notable guests such as Dr. Jeffrey Kripal, New York Times journalists Leslie Keene and Ralph Blumenthal, and Jacques Vallée. In 1985, Whitley experienced a close encounter of the third kind. It led to the writing of his New York Times number one bestseller, Communion, which changed the way the world thinks about this highly enigmatic experience. When he eventually realized that it could not be attributed to known factors, he began making an effort to recontact what he calls the visitors. This has been ongoing for nearly 40 years and is chronicled in his follow-up books Transformation, Breakthrough, Confirmation, The Secret School, and most recently, A New World. His latest book, Jesus, A New Vision, outlines a completely new approach to the meaning and message of Jesus and asks, was he exercising human powers which are buried within us all and we don't suspect are there? In it, Whitley also details his investigation into the Shroud of Turin and what really brought down the Roman Empire, including pandemics and climate change. All of this and more are the subjects of our talk today. Please visit the website speakingofyoung.com where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, March 31st, 
2021 through the magic of Zoom. Hi, Whitley. Hi, I'm, I'm glad to be here with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. I have known you for, oh, I would say over 30 years. It's been a while, Laura. Yeah, you, you, we, you were saying that we met in Dayton at a book signing, and that was over 30 years ago. I have, I have them down here. I have all of the original hardcover editions of your early books, and you signed them all. I brought them to that book signing in Dayton, and so um, I have those. And I know that like Communion and Transformation, those are they're new editions now, and so those those original hardcover editions aren't available anymore. And I'm so happy no. that I, I have them and I saved them. So you've written over 50 books. Yes. I've written a lot of books. I've written, um, <laughs> I'm always working on a book. I'm getting ready to start a new book. Oh, good. But, I was, um, I was wondering, I was going to ask you about that. Oh yes. And, uh, it's about, it'll be a, a book about contact and the, the practical, aspect of it because we're getting to the point where we can look at practical methods of contact and that we know now what is wanted of us and we know uh, how to we know a number of methods of engaging so uh, i think that the next step is for at least some of us to start trying to do this on a regular basis I have been doing it on a regular basis for many years and mm -hmm. it is quite real. It's not, it's not, um, uh, something dreamed up at all. Mm -hmm. Well, we are here today to talk about your latest book about Jesus. Um, but of course you're, you're welcome to interject anything about any of your other books and about your extraordinary life. Um, I have spent time with you at actually conferences as well. I saw you at contact in the desert at the conscious life expo. I was there when you received your lifetime achievement award, uh, from George Norrie. And then you are actually going to be speaking at contact in the desert that's coming up this year's edition will be virtual yes. and I, I actually saw you at conscious life expo a couple months ago actually it's last month it was virtual uh, so we're not traveling due to the pandemic and um, but you're also scheduled for the ozark mountain ufo conference is that going to be virtual as well that's going to be virtual as well yes and do you want to say a little bit about what you'll be presenting this year? Well, uh, I'm going to be talking about at the at that conference, I'm going to be talking primarily about contact methodologies and uh, the material in my book, A New World, which okay. basically is, I know it to be a, a quite correct vision of what is wanted and mm here and uh, also uh, an exploration of the pitfalls and dangers because they are there and they shouldn't be ignored or we shouldn't pretend they don't exist. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and at the uh, contact in the desert, I'm going to add a second lecture about a new form of meditation that I have developed out of 
a long and careful exploration of the pyramid text in the pyramid of Unas in Egypt, which is the oldest religious text in the world, but I think really should be thought of as not the first religious text, so much as the last text about the science of the soul before we began to lose uh, contact with ourselves in that respect. Mm -hmm. And um, so that'll be the second part of the of the uh, contact in the desert presentation. Okay. And I will provide links to registration for those conferences in the show notes for this episode. I will definitely be there to see you, uh, listen to your talks and see you. It's video too. And when you uh, spoke at Conscious Life Expo last month, um, it, it worked out really well. I was able to stream it on my iPad and I connected my iPad to my television so I could watch it on the big screen. And uh, I thought it worked really well. Yeah, I, it, it did work well. Um, uh, it was surprising. Uh, I still, I miss the old Dreamland festivals. And one yeah. of the first things we're going to do when we get back into into travel mm -hmm. is we're going to have another Dreamland festival. Oh, because, great. So nobody's getting any younger. And That's right. Hopefully it'll be me and William Henry and Linda Howe and great. some of the others that are on the show frequently. Great, great. Okay. And, and do you know where that will be? Probably at the Scarrett Bennett Center in um, in, in Nashville. Nashville. Okay, great. Yeah. Okay, great. So let's get into this book um, because I love it. It's available now. Uh, I have the Kindle edition and Audible. Thank you for reading it. Uh, it's you reading the book. And I'm so used to your voice because I've been listening to your podcast, Dreamland, since the beginning. So to have this book read by you, uh, it was a real treat. So uh, I highly Thank encourage you. everyone um, to get that. And so you say that the real story of Jesus has been lost. Yes. And there's another way of looking at it. That's right. Well, what happened in, the, in that time is one of the most extraordinary and complex, if not the most extraordinary and complex event in human history. And especially because it was recorded in the Shroud of Turin. And the, by the way, that, that Shroud of Turin, for those of you who think it was uh, a, a medieval forgery, that has been thoroughly disproved. It wasn't. It is indeed what the scientific community would rather not face, right. which is it is an anomalous object and the mo and it is in fact the strangest thing on earth. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, this has to be understood clearly. And one of the things I do in the book is I go through all of the current research that's been done, and we can get into that mm -hmm. a, a little later. But right now, what I want to do is to go back in time, if you will, to the time that Jesus lived and what it was actually like for people in his world in Palestine. These people were Jewish at, for the most part, and they had enjoyed for the first time in nearly a thousand years freedom, a, a relative a, a, a Jewish state that was Israel again and was free until 
the Romans showed up. And not only did the Romans conquer them, uh, this is before the rebellion, they also installed an Arab as their king, as King Herod, creating a situation where Herod was desperate to survive and had no choice but to be completely loyal to Rome in order to do that. Otherwise, he would be overthrown immediately, which the Romans knew very well. The Romans had a habit of placing as few soldiers in any one place as they possibly could and responding to any resistance with extreme violence. So when Jesus was about two and probably living in Nazareth, although that is, a, again, we can't be absolutely certain of this, in Sephorus, a few miles away, there was a rebellion and the Romans eventually quelled the rebellion and crucified thousands of people from Sephorus on the hills around the town and destroyed the town and sold the women and children into slavery. So this was, and this, Jesus's family was living just a short distance away they may not have been there at that time because there was a rebel who had broken into Sephorus and was despoiling the whole region. Uh, a, 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 he was an extreme zealot, a, a, a Jewish zealot. And anyone who had ever worked for the Romans was fair game as far as he was concerned. If Joseph indeed was a carpenter, he would have worked in Sephorus at that time. Okay. And it was because it was a walk. It was about a two hour walk mm. from, from, uh, from Nazareth. And naturally that would be where he would go for money. There's, there's been a lot of archeology span in Nazareth and we have never found anything of much value from that era. Just the little coin that was known in biblical times as the widow's might, the little bronze coin, the least valuable of all the Roman coinage of that era, and pottery shards, not any public buildings. Most of the houses were either fronted on caves or they were uh, just stone, little stone houses with thatched roofs. And we know they had thatched or, or roofs of because they... Uh, First, that, that style of building is described in the, in the Gospels. Mm -hmm. And second, we have no trace of any roofing materials at all. So it was a very poor place. And now we get into some really interesting stuff about Jesus. My book is the first time that anyone has ever looked at the childhood of Jesus. There is a Gospel. It's apocryphal, it's not in the canon, called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. Now, when you read this, it's a series of stories about Jesus starting at about the age of five. And basically they are stories of an obstreperous little boy 
who could do miracles that uh, were often very upsetting to the people around him, including killing, leading to the deaths of other children. Yeah. Now, this is why this gospel is apocryphal. But, but if you take the miracles out of these stories, and then it suddenly becomes an extraordinary document. Mm -hmm. It is, in fact, the most extensive document about childhood that exists before the 15th and 16th centuries. Mm -hmm. The reason being is simple. They didn't write about children. Yeah. They did not engage very much with their children because seven out of 10 children died before they were five mm. in that world. Right. And not just in, in Palestine, but all over the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. It was very common. And so people didn't really begin to engage with their children until they were a little older. And uh, that the, because they didn't know whether or not the child would last. Mm. And you understand they had no idea what disease was. They had no idea what germs were. They had no understanding of the body at all, none. Um, so what emerges is a really remarkable story about a little boy who was extremely brilliant mm -hmm. and who was also often very angry at the people around him and was treated badly. Now, why would he be treated badly? In that world, first of all, brilliance on the scale of this child, which I was undoubtedly one of the most brilliant human beings who ever lived. Mm -hmm. um, and thank goodness for all of us that he devoted his brilliance to the good. He didn't, there would have been every temptation not to, but he did. In any case, um, <clears throat> in, the, in the earliest gospel, which is not Matthew, but Mark, and it was probably written in Rome about 70 AD, Jesus is described as the son of Mary, not the son of Joseph. Yeah. And he is described as the son of Mary be, because he had no father. In other words, in those days, a child who was legitimate was always described as the son of the father. Mm -hmm. Now, the later gospels, they noticed this and they changed it to the son of Joseph. But in his actual childhood, he was probably regarded as illegitimate and therefore would have been teased even more and bullied by other children. And you can see that in the infancy gospel of Thomas. And so what I did was in this, in this, the chapter about Jesus as an, a little child, I stripped away the miracles and there was a brilliant, angry little boy and your heart just goes out to him yeah. because he understood the world so well and was so alone. My goodness, it's a, it becomes incredibly powerful. Yes, you, you say he was phobic and hypervigilant. And you you wonder, was he a genius child or a divine child? What's the difference? Yeah. It's a choice mm. that is made. Are you there are many genius. Hitler could be described as the exact opposite. He was a transcendent genius. 
but he chose the dark side, right. the, the path of, of death and destruction. Jesus was a transcendent genius. I think more of a genius than Hitler by far, mm -hmm. because he discovered Jesus's greatest discoveries were the dis discovery of the of the individual, which was something that was boiling up through Hellenism and Greek thought at the time. But Jesus identified the individual in a completely new way. And his message was that everybody was equal before God, whether slave, master, it didn't matter what they were. And this, as a, as a man, he lived this. He welcomed everybody. Well, for example, later on in the Gospel of Mark, there is an extraordinary passage uh, about the centurion who asks Jesus <clears throat> to, to cure someone at a distance, to heal at a distance, right. and is rewarded by this healing taking place. And we have, of course, the the centurion, the famous part of the of the of the of the Catholic Mass, which you must remember, uh, 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 where the, the 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 Catholics will honor the faith of this centurion and their own faith uh, by by saying that they are uh, uh, heal my soul, heal me that uh, uh, and I trust you in a in effect in effect to heal me, but. In the Gospel of Mark, the word used when the centurion comes to, uh, to Jesus and says, heal my lover, the word is paidon. Paidon means boy lover. Heal the little boy I have taken as a lover. Now, that's absolutely not done anymore. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in later, in even a hundred years later in Rome, it was really very frowned on. So the rest, the other gospels don't use the word paidon. Mm -hmm. But what my point is this, Jesus was perfectly willing to accept this, what we would call perverted love. Right. He didn't judge. Mm -hmm. He didn't judge people. He judged acts. In other words, if if you acted against the good, Jesus would would basically try to show you how not to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, he was just an extraordinary man, and you started by asking if he was a genius or divine, and I'm I repeat, what's the difference mm -hmm. in his case? Mm -hmm. What's the difference in Hitler's case? Was he a genius? or a demon. And I say again, what's the difference? Mm -hmm. So when he was a child, which I had always been curious about, as you said, that's not written about anywhere. Uh, he no, thought, except in that one gospel. Mm -hmm. Which you know, I wasn't familiar with, but you say that he thought his teachers were idiots and he would strike yes. them dead. And he would strike people blind or turn them into things. And he even brought somebody back to life. Well, I don't think those things happened. Okay. I think he probably did strike his teachers. And I think they probably did strike him too. 
because there was a lot of striking going on in yeah. those days, especially right. with, with children and teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, it, because the, the, the teacher's way in those days was to beat the child that did not learn. And it was primarily, education was primarily uh, not analytical or discursive. It was memorization. And the child who did not get memorized, get memorized properly was liable to be beaten uh, with a stick. And uh, Jesus had a tendency to look down on his teachers because he was much smarter than they were. Mm-hmm. But he was a little boy, and he didn't, he didn't, he did not, he had no self control. So all of these stories about him striking people dead and so forth, they convert into this into a story of a very desperate and brilliant little boy who was getting beaten a lot and who in turn would fight back Mm -hmm. very naturally, especially when other children teased him. And uh, and they would tease him if they thought he was illegitimate, they would tease him. And And in addition to that, he was had this brilliance about him that people would have resented. And in, in those days, if a child was quoting Torah, which he would have been doing, mm-hmm. that would have been considered very strange. And especially the child of a carpenter in a place like Nazareth, where there were no tutors. There were no tutors because there was no money there. We know that because of what the archaeologists have found. And why would anyone who was a carpenter in that milieu want his child to learn? Well, there's an answer to that question in this case. Joseph recognized the extraordinary brilliance of this child. And he, I think he probably did try to get him an education. And um, because by the time he he went to the temple at the age of 12. You know, something very interesting. There's nothing about him asking questions of the scholars and teachers at the temple. He's teaching them. Mm-hmm. Now, that means that he has learned Torah beforehand. So somebody taught Jesus. And this gets to what we will discuss over the course of this interview. There is an amazing invisible presence in the life of Jesus. There was somebody there all along who is not recorded, whose presence is not recorded. Mm -hmm. Somebody educated him. Somebody assisted him through his life and through the passion and after Somebody was there. And when Paul had his experience on the road to Damascus, he was blinded by the light Mm -hmm. and had to be helped into the town where he was taken in by Ananias. And he goes, he was on his way to Damascus for what reason? To persecute and martyr Christians. He had just finished killing St. Stephen. And that was his, what he was, he instead ends up in Damascus blind in the house of Ananias and comes out of it an unknown amount of time later, a theological genius. 
of the first order, one of the great theological geniuses of all times, a Romanized Jew who was a persecutor of Christians and probably a follower of the cult of Mithra, goes to, to uh, uh, Damascus, gets blinded by the light, is suckered by and, he, and helped by Ananias, and comes out a theological genius. So who was there? We, we don't just dismiss it as a miracle. Somebody was there. Mm -hmm. I would like to go back just briefly to the issue of his parents. You said that he was illegitimate. And you go over this in the book in, in great detail. And the thing that I love about this book is the thing that I love about you, Whitley, which is you do a ton of research and yeah. you, you're brilliant. You're one of the smartest people I know. And that's why you have been one of my greatest teachers and why I always go to you. Uh, so his parents, could you say a little bit about that? Yes, I've thought and analyzed this situation with his parents very carefully. Mm -hmm. and this is what I think happened. I think at the age of about 12, Mary was made a, a temple virgin and lived at the temple, in the temple. Now, the Roman fort was next, was, was literally adjacent to the temple. And I think she was probably raped or actually a, a sort of temple prostitute, but we have no evidence that temple prostitution, which was very common in the ancient very world. Very common, yes. Was actually practiced at that temple. We don't know. Okay. And uh, that may mean simply because the records of it were covered up by later and more uh, less promiscuous generations, or it may mean that it did not occur there, but we don't know. In any case, it, th there is an evidence from uh, Celsus, a, uh, an anti-Christian cr Christian critic of the third century AD, which we, we know from, not, not from his works, which were all burned, but rather from, an, from a book called Contra Celsus, against Celsus, which quotes him so extensively that it is probably an effort to preserve his work without, without crossing the then very, very intense Christian authorities. So Celsus claims that he was, she was raped by this pantera, and that she lived as a as a weaver and was alone and very ashamed at some point joseph took her as his wife without almost without question mm -hmm. he must have taken her as his first wife if they went to egypt and they probably did, and I can get into why I think that's true, is, uh, and it, it is because no mention of any other children, there's no mention of any other children going to Egypt. 
And Joseph, therefore, probably only had Mary and the one child. And it may be that they left for a number of reasons, not the least of which would be that Mary, under the law of the Torah at, at the time, would have been considered an adulteress and uh, would have been um, subject to all kinds of unpleasant punishments. And in order to save his wife from that, he would have left. In addition, there was the issue of Sephoris and the what I referred to earlier, that Judas, the I, I, um, the the, um, the the man who was who was going through the area, the bandit was mm-hmm. happened to be called Judas. There's nothing, no relation to the later Judas, the right. betrayer. But in any case, uh, that was happening, and Mary would have been vulnerable to that, uh, especially if they knew or believed she was an adulteress. They would very likely have raped her again and then killed her. So he would have every every reason to leave. And that would have been perhaps why he went to Bethlehem and perhaps why they then went on to Egypt. It's not clear. Right. It's all very unclear. But I think it's fairly probable that they did go to Egypt and that they did that because of something wrong somewhere in the family. And it's not impossible, by the way. I don't discount in the book completely at all mm-hmm. the idea of a miraculous event uh, in terms of Jesus's birth, because after all, there's all kinds of miraculous events that occurred. The shroud is proof of a miraculous event. So why do we have to say the miracles, oh, they didn't happen, uh, and Jesus wasn't was a, a result of a, of a rape by a Roman soldier, and but and then you look at the Shroud of Turin, and something truly extraordinary did happen. Mm-hmm. So maybe the Gospels aren't simply confabulating. Maybe they're telling true stories. Maybe there was a miraculous event that brought Jesus in in into this world. I I don't as I say in the book, I don't discount that. I won't I won't turn away from these possibilities because we are dealing here with the most extraordinary life that's ever been lived yes. anywhere in any culture. Yes. So the big question that I have is how did Jesus become who he became? Was he born that way? I mean that he was one of the most extraordinary people who ever lived. And you could say, well, he wasn't born into it. He didn't get it from his parents. As you say, there was someone there with him from the beginning, something, someone. Yes. Would you say that that made Jesus who he was or he, he came in here like that? I think that we have to look at the way the world is in a very on a very large scale. If you look at the zodiac and I'm and the precession of the equinox, uh, as the precession of the equinox occurs, every twenty two hundred years, a the the uh, pole of the earth gradually moves 
from one constellation to another. In those days, the pole was just in the process of moving into Pisces. The fish became the symbol of Christianity early on. And if you look at the cover of Jesus in New Vision, you will see the Vesica Pisces there because the, the, the sign of the fish, which was to, to spread your hands and then raise them and bring them together again, was the sign that you were a Christian and a believer in Jesus. Now, Pisces is, it was also the beginning of the age of Pisces. And in the age of Pisces, the little fish swims in the waters of the world and is given everything it needs to, to live. Uh, we are at the end of the age of Pisces now in the beginning of the age of Aquarius. And what's happening is the waters are being poured out and the little fish is going to end up on dry land. In other words, we will lose our earth as we know it now. There's no question of that. But you see that this change in the planet coincides with the change in the ages mm -hmm. in the zodiac. So what you're seeing there is a very large scale level of planning that is above human life and intervening in it in some deep way. And I think that Jesus is part of that intervention, but I can't answer the question uh, on a more practical and sort of westernized level because the whole presence of Jesus at that place in time might as well be called a miracle because we simply don't know who that mysterious presence is. We can say it's God, but that immediately, and Jesus was a, an element of God, but that immediately divorces Jesus from us. And this is where Christianity probably went wrong and why we have these huge churches and Jesus, the divine being, looking down on us when we should be looking inside our own hearts to find Jesus, not up to the skies and up to the gods mm -hmm. yeah, not you, at all. In the book, you say he did not offer religious dogma. That was invented by others. And it was. I love how you bring in the procession of the equinoxes. And I was smiling because uh, going back to what we were talking about in the beginning, um, the book signing that I met you at in Dayton, Ohio, I remember distinctly you talking about the procession of the equinoxes and the ages and astrology. Yes. And I remember thinking, whoa, you know, pay attention in the sky. And you weave that through a lot of your work. Uh, and I appreciate that. So Jesus is missing years. Why were they not documented? Well, that, there's something very interesting happens, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. He says in the temple at the age of 12, I must go about my father's business. And then proceeds to disappear mm -hmm. and doesn't come back for years and years. And when he does come back, he is 
has had powers, extraordinary powers yeah. conferred upon him that lead him to be able to become a miracle worker much more than a magician of the period. The magicians of magicians were commonplace in that period. There was a there, 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 the law of the Cornelian law forbade the, the practice of magic in the Roman Empire, and it was a very dangerous thing to be a magician. Uh, there were there there were some healers who were accepted, but others who were considered uh, that they 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 brought dark forces present, mm -hmm. and they could be executed. And I don't want to go into how the Romans executed people. Let's put it this way: the cru crucifixion was merciful compared to some of the Roman execution methods. Right. Right. Um, so you definitely did not want to be come a come a cropper of the state in those days. Uh, but. It, what happened to Jesus? He goes to Egypt. He disappears, apparently goes to Egypt. Mm -hmm. He comes back and comes literally walking into, uh, he first he stops at where John the Baptist is preaching on the Jordan. Mm -hmm. He's baptized and taught by John. He then spends the 40 days in the desert, which is the time of his transformation and where he becomes, I think, self-aware in a way that we still generally are not. Mm -hmm. And he is tempted in the desert and resists the temptation. That is to say, he turns toward the good and allies himself with the good and is empowered yes. at that point mm -hmm. in some way, knows it very well and proceeds to come out of the desert out of after the baptism, go to Nazareth, and start preaching, and the people say, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. Isn't he the son of Jesus, the son of Mary, and later Jesus, the son of Joseph in the later Gospels? What's he babbling on about? He doesn't, he's just one of us, and they, they're ready to throw him out of town. So he leaves and walks to Capernaum, which was not too far away, and starts to teach there. And as he walks along the shore, he says to everyone he sees, come and follow me. Come and follow me. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean what we think. It means do as I do. Yeah. And it's a, it's a message for everyone right now. It's still yes. alive, that message. And how do you do as he does? You read and understand the Beatitudes and you live that way. That's how. You include the Beatitudes in the book. Yes. Um, so chapter about miracles, um, you ask, what were the miracles then, really? You say that they did indeed happen. And not only that, they could be understood. Yes. And I, I'm thinking, OK, how? And you say we don't fully understand our humanity. And that is a theme that I believe runs through this book and yes. what this book really is about 
is what it means to be human because the question well the question that you asked when i first became aware of you and your work is who are we we're so we're so focused on who are they but the real question is who are we well, that's a simple question. Give me five minutes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, my goodness. Um, let's talk about, rather than try to address that question directly, let's mm -hmm. talk about the miracles yeah. and the time in which they took place and what happened. Um, we have something that's well documented in science called the placebo effect, mm -hmm. where a placebo can, something that is not really curative, can cure somebody. We also have healers. And despite science's rejection of them, some of them work successfully. Mm -hmm. I think practically everybody I know has had an experience with or an awareness of healers and healing. I've had healing at a distance and it worked. But why did it work? Right. It worked because I believed it would. And Jesus came with two things, immense person or three things, immense personal authority, a knowledge of the magic techniques, which is shown by what he cures the blind man. He puts spittle on his eyes. And this was the established cure in Egyptian and Greek magic for curing blindness. That, that's how it was done. And he does it that way, meaning he was trained in those magical arts. Uh, Paul was too, by the way, because he says that he bears the marks of Jesus on his body, and that makes him power, that gives him power. And the, marking your body with, with, with magical signs was basic to magic in those days because when you did that you took on the 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 power represented by the symbol you took it into your body mm -hmm. um so it, it, jesus was marked too so he was a magician a, a, a definitely a magician but he brought with it in it brought to this immense personal authority as well and a respect for the individual that was unlike, he was very unlike the people around him. Mm -hmm. He had as much respect for a slave or a common man as he did for a, for a, for a priest, a high priest, uh, that much to the annoyance of the high priest by the way. So with this armed with this authority, with his bona fides as a magician, and the power of the placebo effect, which is much greater than it was much greater than than it is now, because people believed implicitly in this. They believed it completely. He did affect extraordinary cures. Listen, there's a, someone on my website recently uh, uh, posted a story about his wife, who is a healer. And uh, they used to do healing. She used to do healing in the basement of a church. In every week in this meeting that they would have in the church. And one day, one night, a woman with a badly deformed leg came in and he saw his wife put her 
hands on this woman's leg and straighten it. Mm -hmm. And then they were thrown out of the church because the people all said, she did that without calling on Jesus, therefore she must be a demon. And they never went back to the church. But so that's possible. A woman, you understand what I'm saying? A woman just did this a few years ago. So when Jesus did it, he was doing something human. Right. Something deeply and profoundly human. Uh, you know, there's a wonderful book uh, by Dr. Roger Lear, who was the implant doctor. Yeah. He was a podiatrist who became fascinated with implants. And he wrote two books, The Alien and the Scalpel, and another one I believe is called Incident at Varhina in Brazil. He went to Brazil to study a case uh, where an alien had prompt, apparently been been injured and ended up captured and with a broken leg. And he talked to the doctors who worked on this entity's leg and they had reset the bone. And they said that the extraordinary thing was that this being's bone healed in a matter of just hours instead of the weeks it normally would have taken. Mm -hmm. And the alien said to them, you could do this too. You just don't understand yourselves. You're not in touch with your own souls. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a tremendously powerful statement because Jesus was in touch right. with his own soul and therefore, with the power of what in the Gospel of Mary, I think, is most accurately described as the good. In the other Gospels, it's all God. That is to say, someone outside of us, mm -hmm. someone above us. But the good, when you call it the good, it is something that you can embrace and that can become part of you. Great point. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. The powers that Jesus had, uh, Jesus the deceiver, was it magic or was it human powers? Something that they were we human all powers, have? of course. Mm -hmm. They were the powers that we that are on offer to us. Uh, but we we are we're turned away from them somehow. And it's not a matter of just faith. No matter how much faith you have, you may still be turned away from them. And this is why, for example, Christian science largely does not work. No matter how much prayer and faith you have, we are, we are in the thrall of something with, that is in part within us, and I think in part not, that you know, Anne and I and Shirley McLean used to get together up on the Pacific Coast Highway at this lovely outdoor restaurant called uh, Jeffrey's. And we would sit out at the at the at Jeffrey's in the on the deck in the evening overlooking the Pacific. And I would listen to Anne and Shirley 
talking together about the dark and the light. And it was really something. The, Shirley always said that the dark wants the light gone. And Anne would say, but the light, the dark could not be there. It is defined by the absence of light. If there was no light, there would also be no dark. Mm -hmm. And they would go back and forth about this. And we belong in part to the dark. Every yeah. single one of us sure. does. We have to fight hard within ourselves to find the light, to find the good. And it takes a long time mm -hmm. and a lot of inner work yes. and a lot of outer work. You have to live the way the visitors taught me to live by love, compassion, and humility. But it's not, those aren't just words. You have to live that. Mm -hmm. And of course, with armed with the Beatitudes, you've got a, you've got a path you've got, you can understand Yes, that's interesting you mentioned that because on this podcast, speaking of Jung, I talk about Jung's writings and Jung's theories. And what a lot of times I'm realizing is, are people living this? Or are they just reading about it? And I was smiling so big while you were talking and we have the video turned on so we could see each other. You mentioned Shirley MacLaine and I actually had her name in the intro that I read, but it was too long. And so I shortened it. And then Earlier, while we were talking, I was thinking about her because in her book, Out on a Limb, which she had made into a television miniseries that aired on ABC two nights in a row in 1987, they filmed the scene where she was connecting with the God within and her teacher there was, was having her say, I am God, I am God. And the people in the crew were so uncomfortable with that you know, you can't say that. You can't say, I am God. And so after they filmed that scene, they had all of these things go wrong, you know, batteries dying and things breaking because it's like, God forbid, no pun, pun intended, but God forbid we say, I am God. And so I was thinking about Shirley before you mentioned her. So that's why I had that look on my face. Well, you, you know, it depends on where you say it from. Mm. If you say that from your ego and right. you decide, well, I'm a guru, I'm, I'm a, I'm God on earth or something, you're, you're not going to get anywhere. Right. But if you say it from your humility mm. as a human being, then it's true because it's true of every single one of us. We are, uh, Einstein used to say that man that energy that material world is is light energy slowed down and we are that we are light slowed down this gets back to the pyramid text in the temple of unas which uh, describes among many other things a process of uh where the spine is seen as a column of light surrounded by a serpent of light and the hieroglyph uh, uh, for this is, a, is a, a, a snake with wings. That is to say, it's a, we are a serpent 
of light who can fly. And surrounding the spine are the seven tanitter, which became the seven chakras. And they, they, they are smaller serpents moving in a turning motion around the, around the uh, spine. And this turning goes all the way. It, it, it's deep, deeply embedded in mysticism, uh, in the Shaker tradition to turn and turn until we turn round right. This process is a dance. The human experience is a dance through time. It's a dance to the music of time. And when we embrace the dance as dancers, then we cannot help but see ourselves in the context of being part of God and part of the good, because God is dancing. Anne used to say, always have joy. Joy was the key to everything. She said that she loved the work of Meister Eckhart, and one of his sermons is called God Laughs and Plays. And she used to say, that's it, Whitley. We can laugh and play. And if we laugh and play, we become God. So I love that. <laughs> it's yeah. turned out that it's possible to be part of God without do without engaging your ego at all. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Yes. Thank you for that. Yeah. I'm just a little emotional because um, I miss Anne too. So hi, Anne. Yeah. I know you're with us. Yes, she sure is. So um, moving on in the book, I want to get to some more of this in the Gospel of Thomas in chapter eight. You say it could easily be the most mysterious document in religious literature. Yes, and the, it certainly the, is. The Thomas and Mary Gospels were found in Nag Hammadi, Egypt in the mid-1940s. 1947. 47. And did you want to say anything about the Gospel of Thomas? The Gospel of Thomas is very different from the canonical Gospels. The canonical Gospels are stories, and they all have the same purpose to convince the reader that Jesus was a God. Mm -hmm. And the Gospel of Thomas is very different. It's a series of sayings. It's a teaching tool. There is a hidden mathematics in it. Mathematics was very important to understanding to the ancients uh, to understand the world. They believed that math was the basis of everything and that the math of mathematics of God underlay the universe. And in fact, uh, there's a book I mentioned in, in, in Jesus, a new vision by Max Tegmark called, uh, I believe the world is mathematics. And it points out something that must be true that, uh, behind all reality, there is math. And why do we know that? Because the, when the Big Bang happened, the math had to already be there, or the Big Bang would not have organized into the universe as it is today. It wouldn't have. So the math was intrinsic to the Big Bang. Therefore, it was there 
in, in the Big Bang, mm -hmm. in it. Mm -hmm. And that math is Annie, after she had her near-death experience, she had a near-death experience in 2004. When she came back, one of the first things she said astonished me. She said, God is a mathematical formula. And I thought how impious and how frankly silly that sounds. But now I understand this. After she passed on and we wrote the afterlife revolution together, she said, one of the things she said was that, that the universe began or the underlying all gravity, there is a yearning and that yearning is what makes reality basis is, is reality is based on. There was a doctor, Christian Barnard, who told us a story. We, I knew him vaguely. He was, I met him in a green room in Washington years and years ago. Mm -hmm. And when he found out what I was doing and who I was, he told this story. He said, I was sick with a myocardial uh, infection in the hospital in Joburg. He was South African. And I began to struggle. And I realized that I had to have the help of the nurses immediately. And I started pushing the button and they didn't come and they didn't come. And suddenly a woman came into the room in a long white gown and leaned over my bed and to my amazement reached into my chest and cradled my heart in her hands and then pulled up and floated out the window. And I thought I was going mad. Mm -hmm. But in that moment, the whole structure and procedure of the heart transplant surgery that he and Christian Bernard invented mm -hmm. came into my mind. A few moments later, the nurses came running in and said, "We, uh, the woman in the next room has just died and we were trying to save her. That's why we were late. And it was the woman's spirit that did that. Now, when Annie passed away, she knew this story very well. I found to my surprise, lying open on our bookshelf, right in this room, a book called Physics from Fisher Information, which is a book of physics uh, about the physics that must have existed before the Big Bang, that must have the physics that must have been the organizing basis of the universe. And it was opened to a page. And on that page were, was uh, uh, underlined in yellow marks a lot, but not, it had been, the marks a lot had been there for years. It's, mm -hmm. It wasn't anything new, but it, the page was, the universe began with a single primordial quest for knowledge. And that was Anne leaving that piece of information behind as she left in this, and, and, and 
because she knew of the, I would remember the Christian Barnard story mm -hmm. of the woman leaving the information behind as she left. So what we are looking at here, when we look at God, is something very different from the personalized uh, deity, the Roman God, if, if you will, uh, that, that has that has the Western world has inherited basically from Constantine, Jesus as a as as the son of as the divine son of a divine being who is essentially another version of Zeus and Apollo. Uh, there is a reality here. The reality is that there is something profoundly joyous and deeply interested and exploring this universe that the gospel of Mary calls the good and that the gospel of Thomas explores in terms of its mathematics and, and its inner meaning. And the teacher Jesus in that gospel, he makes sure that you do not regard him as a deity and look up to him for information mm -hmm. because every time his disciples in that gospel try to get him to be like a god he comes back at them and says things that are completely crazy and completely at variance with his own teaching and he even says at one point he tells takes one of them aside and says, I am going to tell him something that if the rest of you knew what I have said, you would stone me to death. Mm. In other words, he's saying, don't follow the me as a person, follow the teaching. And when he said at, on, the, on the shore of the, at, at Capernaum, follow me, he meant follow me as a teacher as a teacher yes. and that is the essential core of the gospel of thomas right there so i didn't know if we had time to talk about what you call the scapegoat ritual that was an act of sympathetic magic on jesus's part because i do want to make sure we have time to talk about your research and your findings on the shroud of turin and then we also have time to talk a little bit about the resurrection and then wrap up. Well, let's talk about the scapegoating and the resurrection in the same at the same time. Okay, I'll, great. I'll work in all three because they okay. really are all connected. Okay. Um, Jesus was energized to enact the resurrection, and he was assisted by a group of people. Uh, for example, when he arrives in Bethsaida, he says, as they're going there, that he tells his disciples that to go into the town and they will find a little colt or donkey and to take it and to let the people know that they're not stealing it. Who put it there? Somebody did. When he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, one young man dressed in white, probably therefore an Essene, runs off into the night 
so intent on escaping from this event that he actually drops his clothes and leaves them behind. And uh, he did that, of course, because uh, his clothes were white and they were easy to see in the dark. And that was a world in which when darkness fell, you could escape because, you know, nobody had adequate light. And he ran off into the dark without his clothes so that he could be, wouldn't be seen, would be less easy to see him. Mm-hmm. And, um, but who was he? And why did he need so badly to survive whatever was about to happen there? We don't know. And as to the upper room, Jesus says, you will go and you will find this room prepared for us. Who prepared it? Who provided the food? Who was there? Mm -hmm. And then the most important of all of these passion preparations is the moment when the woman pours nard over his head. Now, what nard was, was a the uh, perfume of a flower that grew grew in the and still does grows in the foothills of the Himalayas, and it was the most valuable fragrance on earth at the time, worth much more than gold. And it was believed that souls had a fragrance, which incidentally they do, but that's for another show. Uh, And when she poured the nard over him, she was saying that this, he is, I am preparing him for his death. This is a, this is a preparation that recognizes the beauty of his soul. Now the people there in the room in the house of Simon were angry and they said, well, why waste that oil? Expensive oil, you could have given that money to the poor. They were Essenes, and Essenes uh, were very much against the use of oil on the body. Mm -hmm. So who was she? He says that he he thanks her and says, "Your, your act will be remembered forever. But actually, afterwards, she's completely forgotten. She's not a significant part of any any gospel literature at all until my book. And I don't intend to forget her because she was the initiator of the passion. She was the one who started it. And then from then on, he's in the hands of women who conduct him through the whole fat passion who are with him. Veronica, who holds the cloth to his face when he is suffering in the streets of Jerusalem, the three women at the foot of the cross, Mary, his mother, Mary, his wife, and uh, Salome are there with him. And who is it who goes to, to harvest the fruits of this effort? But the three Marys, the, the, the women again, who are the first to see someone sitting at the open tomb. Is that the boy who ran off and is now back officiating somehow in the process of resurrection? Because what happened in that tomb 
is no ordinary event. Mm -hmm. What happened in that tomb is very straightforward. I can say it in just a few words. A dead human body that was already visibly in a state of rigor mortis turned into light. Uh, and that light was highly energetic, in fact, radioactive. And it flew through the shroud, leaving the image behind on the surface of the, the linen of the shroud. And that's another thing. It's the only linen shroud we've ever found. And it, was, it had a herringbone weave that was a royal weave. Uh, you find that herringbone weave in the tombs of Egyptian, uh, Egyptian pharaohs. So what in the world was a weave like that, an incredibly valuable piece of cloth like that, doing in the tomb of a supposedly uh, executed criminal? Mm -hmm. The answer is... He, the shroud wouldn't have worked on a cotton, uh, the, the event wouldn't have happened, wouldn't have been recorded properly on a cotton shroud. Okay. It had to be linen or nothing. Therefore, Joseph of Arimathea, who provided this, was part of this group. And they knew that they would need a linen shroud in order to cause the image to be left behind. Now let's now at the time the image wouldn't have been visible. Okay. But there's a report, an interesting report, that the women experienced an earthquake right before this happened, that there was an earthquake. The ex explosion of this body into light would have been a very intense event, enough to cause the ground to shake without question. Then what does Jesus do? He doesn't go into Jerusalem as a transformed being of light and change the world. Mm -hmm. Not at all. Not at all. Because it's not ready for that yet. And in, I'll tell you what would have happened if he had done that. He, the time would end. Then time would end. And when time ends, the judgment is upon us. Mm. And we still had much time to explore our souls and our reason for being here, which is for every single one of us to know who we truly are. And this is an immense journey, an immense journey, because these little bodies, you and me, are actually tremendously powerful and extraordinary beings out coming, roaring out of the depths of time to find this place and this moment of our lives when we can live in the stream of time in ignorance of who and what we really are so that we can act from our truth. And then after death, we leave the darkness of life and come into the light of the, of, of the soul and we see who we are. We, we learn, we are learning ourselves here. In any case, Jesus did not want to interrupt that process. So he immediately goes, not to Jerusalem to take over the world, but back to, uh, back to Galilee, to his home place, where he's very careful about exposing himself just to just enough people to where he, would, he is sure 
that they will take his message out into the world. And they do. Mm-hmm. These people literally give up everything and start walking through the Roman Empire in the dangers of the roads of Rome and on the walking into these little crowded cities into the fora at the middle of the town and starting to preach about a man who had come back to life in total defiance of the Roman Empire who had crucified him and he had come back to life anyway. Why would they do that if they didn't believe it happened? They saw him. They gave up their lives because of that. I mean, how hard would that be? What I think of all of us, if we were to decide, I'm going to give up everything. I'm going to leave my home, my family, my money, everything in order to tell the world about something. That something had to be powerful. Not just somebody saying, oh, this happened and you should believe it. You had to see it. And he says, and this is for our era, and we're going to roll into the end of the show in a moment. Okay. For our era, he says at one point in John, if you have not awakened, I will return as a thief, like a thief, in other words, secretly. And he, that means that he, if we have not, we're not ready yet, he's not going to return in glory and end time. He's going to return in another way, and he did. In 1898, Secundo Pia raised a camera to the Shroud of Turin and took a picture of it. At that moment, Jesus had returned like a thief mm. because that picture is suddenly, for the first time, we had a positive image from the negative that's on the Shroud. Mm-hmm. And that was the return. And then in 1947, 47 being a number of profound change, not only did the Roswell incident happen, right. we also found Nag Hammadi, the Nag Hammadi Library. Mm-hmm. And in the Nag Hammadi Library are the secrets of Jesus. The secret teaching is there. And I, I'll be very frank with you. It's also in my book. That's where it, and it is there. And you can you know you can say what you want about it, but the book is the book. The the material about the Gospels of Mary and Thomas is accurate, very accurate. The book is called Jesus: A New Vision. Whitley, thank you so much. Well, thank you, folks, for listening to me, and do take this to heart. Please visit the website Speaking of Jung. That's J U N G com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This episode is also available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. And it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungian Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying, Alexa, play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Anne Streber and Art Bell.
I'm Laura London, and you've been listening to a very special quarantine edition of Speaking of Young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,